PrettyLitter.com, introducing the world's smartest cat litter. Health monitoring litter that won't break the bank or your back. This truly is litter box magic. 15,000 five-star reviews. Say goodbye to that litter box smell. Pretty litter traps odor instantly and then eliminates moisture so you'll never smell your cat's dirty business again. Easier cat care and fresh litter is just around your doorstep. No need to bring baking soda for extra odor or absorption. Ditch the pine pellets and upgraded to silica cat litter. Refill once a month, scoop less, up to 80% lighter. Cat parents are obsessed with this color-changing litter. Unlike traditional litter, pretty litter keeps tabs on your cat's health by changing color. Cats are notorious for hiding illnesses. Pretty litter changes color to tell you when your cat has a potential health issue so you can get them to help before it becomes an urgent medical situation. Pretty litter, silica litter, crystal litter could save you big money on expensive pet bills, not to mention it could save your cat's life. The soil litter will show the following alkalinity. Blue may indicate certain types of urinary tract infections or increased risk of stone formation. Typical dark yellow, olive green coloring indicates urine within a typical range. Acidity orange may indicate a metabolic acidosis or kidney tubular acidosis. Blood red may indicate bladder crystals, feline lower in urinary tract disorder or certain types of kidney disease. How Pretty Litter works. Choose number of cats. Tell Pretty Litter how many cats you have and they'll know how much litter to send you. They have options for grocery scenario for every scenario. Get your litter delivered every month. Pretty Litter's lightweight cat litter is delivered to your door. Refill once a month. Pretty Litter's non-clump advanced formula means you need less kit litter compared to traditional clay litter with clumping formula save money. Pretty Litter will save you money on potential vet bills through er every de early detection plus on average cost less per month compared to leading brand competitors. Cleaner and safer Pretty Litter is made from clean effective materials that help control odor and Reduce dust while also being family and pet safe. Household friendly, less dust, less mess, 99.9% .9 dust free. Everyone's talking about Pretty Litter. Veterinarian seal of approval. Why Pretty Litter is better. Advanced odor control. Pretty Litter super absorbent silica gel litter. Eliminates smells. Ultra light and delivered free. Stop hauling a giant bag of litter from the store. Monitor your cat's health. Crystals change color to help detect early signs of illnesses. The Pretty Litter promise Pretty Litter to take some of the stress out of cat parenting so you can focus on what matters most, living a long and happy life together. Pretty Litter was invented to give cat parents peace of mind knowing that they can keep daily tabs on their cat's health. To further take care of your cat's health, Pretty Litter developed Pretty Please, a premium grab grain-free cat food to support your companion in all stages of life. Look for a special introductory offer when you add Pretty Litter. Pretty Please to your Pretty Litter order at checkout. 30-day guarantee. That try Pretty Litter at risk-free for 30 days. If for 
Any reason you're not completely satisfied, just return within 30 days and Pretty Litter will issue a full refund. Get started today. Try Pretty Litter. Talkspace.com Feeling better starts with a single message. Support for individual therapy for me, couples therapy for us, teens ages 13 to 17, psychiatry, medication management. Talkspace accepts insurance rated number one online therapy, 1 million users, employee stress check report, what's behind the great resignation, read the results of this year's survey, introducing more flexibility, learn about how Talkspace has updated their line sessions format to better serve you. Mental health checkup. Take a short online test to get answers about your mental health, how Talkspace works, brief assessment, answer a few questions about your preferences, pick your therapist, select from a list of recommendations, start therapy, begin the journey toward a happier you, benefit the Talkspace, eliminate commuting time and scheduling hassles, flexible plans to meet your needs and lifestyle, seamlessly switch therapies at no extra cost, save money while Returning, receiving high-quality care, ready to get started. Talkspace offers comprehensive online mental health treatment options to meet all your needs via video, messaging, or phone. Online therapy, ongoing support from a licensed therapist, couples therapy, relationship-centered therapy that connects you and your partner. Teen therapy, specialized therapy for ages 13 to 17, psychiatry, valuations, and Psychic medications management, more than 60,000 five-star reviews, licensed providers providing a range of specialties to meet your specific needs of, in areas like depression, relationships, anxiety, and stress, parenting, LGBTQIA, chronic illness, eating disorders, anger management, childhood abuse, mood disorders, old trauma and grief, no, OCD, trauma and grief, substance abuse, family conflict, and much more. Get matched today. Talkspace versus face-to-face therapy. 80% found Talkspace to be as effective or more effective than traditional therapy. 98% found Talkspace to be more convenient than traditional therapy. And Talkspace for business. Talkspace partners with employers, health plans, and schools to make mental health care more available and, and affordable. Hope you enjoyed your hour less of sleep last night as it was a end of daylight savings. Here is part four of U.S. President number 35, John F. Kennedy, American University Speech. A strategy of peace. On June 10, 1963, Kennedy, at the high point of rhetorical powers, delivered their commencement address at American University in Washington, D.C., also known as a strategy of peace. Not only did the president outline a plan to curb nuclear arms, but he also laid out a hopeful yet realistic route for world peace at a time when the U.S. and Soviet Union faced the potential for an escalating nuclear arms race. The president wished to discuss a topic on which to often ignorance to soften ignorance abounds on the truth is too rarely perceived, yet it is the most important topic on earth. World peace. I speak of peace because a new phase of a new 
of the new face of war in an age when singular nuclear weapons contains ten times explosive force delivered by all the Allied forces in the Second World War, an age when deadly when the deadly poisons produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and air and soil and sea to the far corners of the globe and to generations yet unborn, I speak of peace therefore as the necessary rational end of rational men. World peace, like community peace, does not require that each man love his neighbor. It requires only that they live together in a mutual tolerance. Our problems are man-made, therefore they can be solved by man, and man can be as big as he wants. The President also made two announcements. One, that the Soviets had expressed desire to negotiate a nuclear test ban treaty, and two, that the U.S. had postponed planned atmospheric tests. West Berlin speech. In 1963, Germany was enduring a time of particular vulnerability due to Soviet aggression to the east as well as the impending retirement of West German Chancellor Adenauer. At the same time, French President Charles de Gaulle was trying to build a, France, a Franco-West German counterweight to the American and the Soviet spheres of influence. To Kennedy's eyes, this Franco-German co- cooperation seemed directed against NATO's influence in Europe. On June 26, President Kennedy gave a public speech in West Berlin. He re- reiterated the American commitment to Germany and criticized communism and was met with an ecstatic response from a massive audience. Kennedy used the construction of the Berlin Wall as an example of the failures of communism. Freedom has many difficulties. Democracy, democracy is not perfect, but we have never had to put a wall up to keep our people in to prevent them from leaving us. The speech is known for its famous Phrase, Ich bin ein Berliner, I am a citizen of Berlin. A million people were on the street for the speech. Kennedy remarked to Ted Soros and Ezra, we'll never have another day like this one as long as we live. Israel. In 1960, Kennedy stated Israel would endure and flourish. It is like the child of hope and the home of the brave. It can neither be broken by adversity nor demoralized by success. It carries the shield of democracy and honors the sword of freedom. As President, Kennedy initiated the creation of security ties with Israel, and he is credited as the founder of the U.S.-Israeli military alliance, which would be continued under his subsequent presidents. Kennedy entered the arms embargo and that, that the Eisenhower and Truman administration had enforced on Israel, describing the protection of Israel as a moral and national commitment. He was the first to introduce the concept as a special relationship, as he described it to Golda Meir, between the U.S. and Israel. Kennedy extended the first formal, first informal security guarantees to Israel in 1962, and beginning in 1963, who was the first U.S. president to allow the sale of Israel of advanced U.S. weaponry, the MIN-23 Hawk, as well as to provide diplomatic support for Israeli policies, which were opposed by Arab neighbors. Those policies included Israel's water project on the Jordan River. As a result of this newly created security alliance, Kennedy also encountered tensions with the Israeli government over the production of nuclear materials in Dimona, which he believed could instigate a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. After the extent, after the existence of a nuclear plant was initially denied by the Israeli, Israeli government, David Ben-Gurion stated in a speech to the Israeli Nested on December 21, 1960, that the purpose of the nuclear plant at Beersheba was for research in problems of arid zones and desert flora and fauna. When Ben Gurion met with Kennedy in New York, he claimed that Demona was being developed to provide nuclear power for desalination and other peaceful purposes for the time being. In 1963, the Kennedy administration was engaged in a now declassified diplomatic standoff with the with 
Israel. In May 1963, letter to Ben-Gurion, Kennedy wrote that he was skeptical of states that American support of Israel could be in jeopardy if reliable information on the Israeli nuclear program was not forthcoming. Ben-Gurion repeated previous reassurances that Demona was being developed for peaceful purposes. The Israeli government resisted American pressure to open its nuclear facilities to International Atomic Energy Agency, i.e. IAEA, inspections. In 1962, the U.S. and Israeli governments had agreed to an annual inspection regime, a science attache at the embassy in Tel Aviv, concludes that parts of the Demona facility have been shut down temporarily to mislead American scientists when they visited. According to Seymour Hirsch, the Israelis set up false control rooms to show that American Israeli lobbyist Abe Feinberg stated it was part of my job to tip them off that Kennedy was insisting on an, ins- an inspection. Hirsch attempts that the inspections were conducted in such a way that it guaranteed that the whole procedure would be little more than a whitewash as the president and senior advisors had tour had to understand the American inspection team would have to schedule its visits well in advance and with the full acquiescence of Israel. Mark Trachtenberg argued that all though he was well aware of what the Israelis were doing, Kennedy chose to take a satisfactory uh, evidence of Israeli compliance with American non proliferation policy. The American who led the inspection team stated that the essential goal of the inspections was to find ways to not reach the point of taking action against Israel's nuclear weapons program. Roger Davis, the director of the State Department's Office of New Near Eastern Affairs, concluded in March 1960 that Israel was developing nuclear weapons. He reported that Israel's target date for achieving nuclear capability was 1968 to 1969. On May 1, 1968, Under Secretary of State Nicholas Katzenbach told President Johnson that the Mona was producing enough plutonium to produce two bombs a year. The State Department argued that if Israel wanted arms, it should accept international provision, supervision of its nuclear program. Demona was never placed under IAEA safeguards. Attempts to write Israeli adherence to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, NPT, into context for the supply of U.S. weapons continued throughout 1968. Iraq. Relations between the United States and Iraq became strained following the overflow of the Iraqi monarchy on July 14, 1958, which resulted in the declaration of a Republican government led by Brigadier Ab al Qasim Quasim on June 25, 1961. Quasim mobilized troops along the border between Kuwait and Iraq, declaring the latter nation. Quasim mobilized troops along the border between Iraq and Kuwait, declaring the latter nation an indivisible part of Iraq and causing a short-lived Kuwait crisis. The United Kingdom, which had been, which had just granted Kuwait independence on June 19th and whose economy was dependent on Kuwaiti oil, responded on July 1st by dispatching 5,000 troops to the country to deter an Iraqi invasion. At the same time, Kennedy dispatched a U.S. Navy task force to Bahrain, and the U.K. at the urging of the Kennedy administration brought the dispute to the United Nations Security Council where the proposed re- resolution was vetoed by the Soviet Union. The situation resolved in October when the British troops were withdrawn and replaced by a 4,000-strong Arab League force which acted as a barrier against the Iraqi threat. In December 1961, Quasar's government passed Public Law 80 which restricted the partially American-controlled Iraq Petroleum Company IPCs 
concessionary holding to those areas in which oil was actually being produced effectively, expropriating 95.5% of the IPC concession. U.S. officials were alarmed by the expropriation as well as the recent Soviet veto of an Egyptian-sponsored U.N. resolution requesting the maintenance of Kuwait as U.N. member state, which they believed were connected. Senior National Security Council advisor Robert Comer Word that if the IPC ceased production in response, Quezon might grab Kuwait, thus achieving a stranglehold on Middle Eastern oil production or throw himself into Russian arms. Comer also made a note of widespread rumors that a national coup against Quezon could be imminent and had the potential to get Iraq back on a more neutral keel. In April 1962, 1962, the State Department issued new guidelines in Iraq that were intended to increase American influence there. Meanwhile, Kennedy instructed the CIA under the direction of Archibald Bullock Roosevelt Jr. to begin making preparations for a military coup against Quasar. The anti-imperialist and anti-communist Iraqi Ba'ath Party overthrew and executed Quasar in a violent coup on February 8, 1963. While there have been persistent rumors that the CIA organized the coup, declassified documents, and the testimony for a former CIA officer indicated that there was no direct American involvement, although the CIA was actively seeking a suitable replacement for Quasar within the Iraqi military and had been informed of an earlier Baha Atheist coup plot. The Kennedy administration was pleased with the outcome and ultimately approved a $55 million arms deal for Iraq. Ireland during his four-day visit to his ancestral home of Ireland in June 1963, Kennedy accepted a grant of uh, of uh, armorial bearings from the Chief Herald of Ireland and received honorary degrees from the National University of Ireland and Trinity College, Dublin. He visited a cottage at Duggan, near New Ross County, Wexford, where his ancestors had lived before emigrating to America. Kennedy was also the first foreign leader to address the houses of the Oria Actas, the Irish Parliament, on December 22, 2006, the Irish Department of Justice released declassified police documents indicating that security was heightened as Kennedy was the subject of three death threats during his visit. Nuclear Test Ban Treaty Troubled by the long-term dangers of radioactive contamination and nuclear weapons proliferation, Kennedy and Khrushchev agreed to negotiate a nuclear test ban Treaty originally conceived in Adlai Stevenson's 1956 presidential campaign in their Vienna summit meeting in June 1961. Khrushchev and Kennedy both, both reached an informal understanding against nuclear testing, but the Soviet Union began testing nuclear weapons in September. <coughs> in response to the United States conducting tests five days later, shortly afterwards, new U.S. satellites began delivering images which made it clear that the Soviets were substantially behind the U.S. in the arms race. Nevertheless, the greater nuclear strength of the U.S. was off was of little value as long as the USSR proceeded so to be at parity. On, in July 1963, Kennedy sent W. Avril Harriman to Moscow to negotiate a treaty with the Soviets. There Introductory sessions to go to Khrushchev, who later delegated Soviet representation to Andrei Gromyoko. It quickly became clear that a comprehensive test ban would not be implemented, due largely to the reluctance of the Soviets to allow inspections that would verify compliance. Ultimately, the United States, United States, United Kingdom, and the Soviet Union were the 
initial signatories to a limited retreaty, which Britain and atomic tested on the ground in the atmosphere or underwater, but not underground. The U.S. Senate ratified this, and Kennedy signed it into law in October 1963. France was quick to declare that it was free to continue developing and testing its nuclear defenses. Domestic Policy Kennedy called his domestic program the New Frontier, an ambitious promise federal funding for education, medical care for the elderly, economic aid to rural agents, and government intervention to halt the recession. He also promised an end to racial discrimination, although his agenda, which included the endorsement of the Voter Education Project, VEP, in 1960, produced little progress in areas such as Mississippi, where the VEP concluded that discrimination was so entrenched. In his 1966 State of the Union address, he proposed substantial tax reform and a reduction in income tax rates from the current range of 20 to 90 percent to a range of 14 to 65 percent, as well as a reduction of the corporate tax rates from 52 to 47 percent. Kennedy added, added that the top rate should be set at 70 percent if certain deductions were not limited for high-income earners. Congress did not act until 1960, a year after his death. When the top individual rate was lowered to 70%, and the top corporate rate was set at 48%. To the Economic Club of New York, he spoke in 1960 of their paradoxical truth that tax rates are too high and revenue is too low, and the soundest way to raise revenue in the long term is to lower tax rates now. Lower rates now. Congress passed a few of Kennedy's major progress during his lifetime. But but did vote them through in 1964 and 1967 under his successor, Johnson. Economy. Kennedy ended a period of tight fiscal policies, loosening monetary policy to keep interest rates down and to encourage growth of the economy. He presided over the fifth government budget to top the $100 billion mark in 1960, and his first budget in 1961 resulted in the nation's first non War non-recession deficit. The economy, which had been through two recessions in three years, was and was in one when Kennedy took office, accelerated notably throughout his administration despite low inflation and interest rates. The GDP had grown but by an average of only 2.2% per annum during the Eisenhower administration, scarcely more than population growth at the time, and it had declined by 1% during Eisenhower's last 12 months in office. The economy turned around and prospered during Kennedy's years as president. The GDP expanded by an average of 5.5% from early 1961 to late 1963, while inflation remained steady at around 1% and unemployment eased. The industrial production rose by 50% and motor vehicle sales increased by 40%. This rate of growth in GDP and industry continued until 1969 and has yet to repeat it for such a sustained period of time. Attorney General Robert Kennedy took the position that still in Texas had illegally colluded to fixed prices. He stated we're going to we're going for broke in their expense accounts were where they've been and what they've been doing. The FBI is to interview them all and we can't lose this. The administration's action influenced US Steel to resume the price increase. The Wall Street Journal wrote the administration had acted by naked power, by threats, and by agents of the state security police. Yelled law Professor Charles Reich opined in the New Public that the administration had violated civil liberties by calling grandeur to indict U.S. steel for collusion so quickly. An editorial in the New York Times praised Kennedy's actions and said that the steel industry's price increase imperiled the economic welfare 
of the country by inviting a tidal wave of inflation. Nevertheless, the administration's Bureau of Budget reported the price increase would have caused a net gain for the GDP as well as a net budget surplus. The stock market, which had steadily declined since Kennedy's selection in 1960, dropped 10% shortly after the administration's action on the steel interest took place. Federal and military death penalty. During his administration, Kennedy oversaw the last federal executive prior to Furman W. Furman v. Georgia in a 1972 case that led to a moratorium on federal executions. Victor Fagler was sentenced to death by an Iowa federal court and was executed on March 15, 1966. Kennedy commuted a death sentence imposed by a military court on Seaman Jimmy Henderson on February 12, 1962, changing the penalty to life in prison. On March 22, 1962, Kennedy signed it to, into law H.R. 5143, P.L. 87. Dash four two three, which abolished a mandatory death penalty for first degree murder in the District of Columbia, the only remaining jurisdiction in the United States with such a penalty. With such a penalty, the death penalty has not been applied to the, in the District of Columbia since nineteen fifty seven, and has now been abolished. Civil rights movement. The turbulent end of state sanctioned ra- racial discrimination was one of the most pressing domestic issues of the nineteen sixties. Jim Crow segregation was the established law in the Deep South. The U.S. Supreme Court had ruled in 1954 in Brown v. Board of Education that racial segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. Many schools, especially those in southern states, did not obey the Supreme Court's decision. The court also prohibited segregation in other public facilities such as buses, restaurants, theaters, courtrooms, bathrooms, and beaches, but it continued nonetheless. Kennedy verbally supported the racial integration and civil rights during his 1960s during his 19th presidential campaign, he telephoned Coretta Scott King, wife of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., who had been jailed while trying to integrate a department store lunch counter. Robert Kennedy called Georgia Governor Ernest Van Diver and obtained King's release from prison, which drew additional black support to his brother's candidacy upon taking office in 1961. Kennedy postponed promised civil rights legislation he made while campaigning in 1960, recognized that conservative Southern Democrats controlled congressional legislation. Historic Carl M. Brower concluded that passing any civil rights legislation in 1961 would have been a futile. During his first year in office, Kennedy appointed many blacks to office, including his May appointment of civil rights attorney Thurgood Marshall to the federal bench. In his first State of the Union, Addressed in January 1961, President Kennedy said the denial of constitutional rights to some of our fellow Americans on account of race at the ballot hoax and elsewhere disturbs the national conscience and subjects us to the charge of world opinion that democracy is not equal to the high promise of our heritage. Kennedy believed the grassroots movement for civil rights to endanger many Southern whites and make it more difficult to pass civil rights laws in Congress, including anti-poverty legislation, and he distanced himself from it. Kennedy was concerned with other issues in the early part of his administration, such as the Cold War, Bay Pigs fiasco, and <coughs> the situation in Southeast Asia. As articulated by his brother Robert, the administration's early priority was to keep the president out of this civil rights mess. Civil rights movement presented only those on the front line in the South viewed Kennedy as lukewarm, especially concerning the Freedom Riders, who are organized in an integrated the public conversation ever in the South and who were repeatedly met with white mob violence, including by law enforcement officers, both federal and state. Kennedy assigned federal marshals to protect the freedom riders rather than using federal troops or uncorrupted FBI agents. Robert Kennedy, speaking for the president under 
urged the Freedom Riders to get off the buses and leave the matter to peaceful settlement in the courts. Kennedy feared sending federal troops with syrup hated memories of Reconstruction after the Civil War among conservative Southern whites. On March 6, 1961, Kennedy signed Executive Order 10925, which required government contractors to take affirmative action to ensure that applicants are employed and that Employees are treated during employment without regard to their race, creed, color, or national origin. It established the President's Committee on Equal Employment Opportunity, displeased with Kennedy's appearance addressing the issue of segregation. Martin Luther King Jr. and Associates produced this document in 1960, calling on the President to follow in the footsteps of Abraham Lincoln and use an executive order to deliver a blow for civil rights as a kind of second emancipation proclamation. Kennedy did not execute the order. In September 1962, James Meredith enrolled at the University of Mississippi was prevented from entering the, in response to that. Attorney General Robert Kennedy sent 127 U.S. Marshals and 360 U.S. Border Patrol and 97 Federal Correction Officers who were deputized as Marshals. The old Miss Riot of 1960 left two civilians dead and 300 people injured, prompted President Kennedy to send in 3,000 troops to quell the riot. Meredith did finally enroll for class and Kennedy regretted not sending in troops earlier. Kennedy began doubting as to whether the evils of Reconstruction of the 1860s and the 1870s he had been taught or believed it were true. The instigated subculture during the Old Miss riot and many other acts racially ignited events was the Ku Klux Klan. On November 20, 1962, Kennedy signed election order. 11063, which put racial discrimination in federal supported housing or related facilities. Both the President and the Attorney General were concerned about King's ties to suspected communists Jack O'Dell and Stanley Levison. Levis- After the President and the Civil Rights Expert Harris Walford pressed King to ask both men to resign from the SCLC, King agreed to ask only O'Dell to resign from the organization and allow Levison. Levison, whom he regarded as a trusted advisor, to remain. In early 1963, Kennedy related to Martin Luther King Jr. King Jr.'s thoughts on the process for civil rights legislation. If we get into a long fight over this in Congress, it will bottleneck everything else, and we will still get no bail. Civil rights clashes were on the rise that year. Brother Robert and Ted Sorison pressed Kennedy to take more initiative on the <coughs> legislative front. On June 11, 1963, President Kennedy President Kennedy intervened when Alabama Governor George Wallace blocked the doorway to their University of Alabama to stop two African-American students, students Vivian Malone and James Hood, from attending. Wallace removed aside only after being confronted by Deputy Attorney General Nicholas Kotzenbach and the Alabama U.S. National Guard, which had been federalized by order by the, of the President that evening. Kennedy gave his favorite report to the American people on civil rights on national television and radio launching an initiative of civil rights legislation to provide equal access to public schools and other facilities and greater protection of voting rights. His proposal became part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The day ended with the murder of NAACP leader Medgar Evers. 
in front of his home in Mississippi as the president had predicted the day after his TV speech. In reaction to it, House Majority Leader Carl Albert called to advise him that his two-year signature effort in Congress to combat poverty in Appalachia area redevelopment administration has been defeated primarily by the votes of Southern Democrats and Republicans. When Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr. complimented Kennedy on his remark, Kennedy bitterly replied, yes, and look at the, what happened to area developments the very next day in the House. He then added, but of course, I had to give that speech, and I'm glad I, that I did. On June 16th, the New York Times published an editorial which argued that while the president had initially moved too slowly and with little evidence of deep moral commitment in regards to civil rights, he now demonstrated a genuine sense of urgency about eradicating racial discrimination from our national life. Earlier, Kennedy had signed the executive order creating the President Commission on the Status of Women on December 14, 1961. President Le Former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt led the commission. The commission says it reveals that women were also experiencing discrimination. His final report documenting legal and cultural barriers was issued in October 1963. Further, on June 10, 1963, Kennedy signed the Equal Pay Act of 1963, which amended the Fair Labor Standards Act and abolished wage disparity based on sex. Over 100,000 predominantly African Americans gathered in Washington for the Civil Rights March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom on August 28, 1963. Kennedy feared the march would have a negative effect on the process for a civil rights bill in Congress and declined an invitation to speak. He turned over some of the details of the government's involvement to the Just Department of Justice, which channels hundreds of thousands of dollars to the six sponsors of the march, including the NAACP and Martin Luther King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SCLC. To ensure peaceful discrimination demonstration, the organizers and the president firstly edited speeches which were inflammatory and agreed the march would be held on a Wednesday and would be over at 4 p.m. Thousands of troops were placed on standby. Kennedy watched King's speech on TV and were very impressed. Their march was a triumph of managed protest and not a one arrest leading to the demonstration occurred. Afterwards, the marshal accepted an invitation to the White House to meet with Kennedy and photos were taken and Kennedy felt that the march was a victory for him as well as both and bolstered the chances of a civil rights bill. Nevertheless, the struggles were far from over. Three weeks later, on Sunday, September 15th, a bomb exploded at the 16th Street Baptist Church Birmingham. By the end of the day, four American children for African-American children had died in an explosion and two other children were shot to death in the aftermath. Due to this resurgence violence, the civil rights legislature underwent some drastic amendments that critically endangered any process for passage of the bill to the outrage of the president. Kennedy called the congressional leaders to the White House, and by the following day, the original bill without the additions had enough votes to get it out of the House committee. Gaining Republican support, Senator Everett Dirksen promised the legislature would be brought to a vote preventing a Senate filibuster. The legislation was enacted by Kennedy's successor, President Lyndon B. Johnson, prompted by Kennedy's memory after his assassination in November, enforcing voting rights, public accommodations, employment education, and administration of justice. Stay tuned to Part 5 of U.S. President Number 35, John F. Kennedy.